Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. November 15th, 2020, episode 182, Polypower. Hello, everyone, and welcome. My thanks, as always, for stopping by. My name is Kevin England. I'm going to declare up front that I am super excited to log this episode as it will afford me the opportunity to document a few ideas that I've been harboring for quite some time now. And after thinking them through, it's kind of like a fine wine that you have reached the maturity to give it a taste. And I'm going to put pen to paper, so to speak, and share them with you. Yesterday afternoon, I drove over to Bob Kloss's house, picked him up, and we went for a hike. We both agreed that we needed to get out of the house, and we spent a little time in his yard looking over his bees, checking his apiary, doing different things. But then we headed out and walked for a little while. And the funny thing is, is I think we walked until we were done covering all the beekeeping topics, and then we said, yep, okay, we can turn around now, we can go home. All those pent-up thoughts about beekeeping is, uh, you know, what we were discussing. We do that in the periods where we don't talk to each other, and it's kind of cathartic in so many ways. So, you know, look, if you have the opportunity in COVID times to do it in a safe manner, a good thing to try. During our sojourn, I spent some time articulating what I was planning to talk about in this episode, and I kind of wanted to know from Bob his honest impressions about how all this stuff was I planned to to pour my heart out about, did the information jive, and whether it was going to be safe to disclose or was it going to make a fool of myself? Um, You know, you would think that I wouldn't worry about that, but I do. Without belaboring the point, he didn't hate it. (laughs) In fact, he was a good sounding board for the dry run of the content. And I trust that if there was a flaw in the logic, we've got such a a clear candor to each other, he would have called it out, and he didn't. Um, You know, he kind of understood where I went, why I went, where I went, how I went. And he liked it. So that was my impression. Now, this episode's content is more about relaying experiences and then synthesizing what happened and making conclusions about polystyrene hives. That's what polypower means. And it is going to have a profound impact, I think, on how I plan to keep bees in the future. So this is an important topic to me, right? I'm testing different theories, and I want to know whether they float or not. The episode's going to take a slight turn. It's more kind of like a sidebar episode from the conventional format. It's going to be presented as two topics. They're separate topics, but they, you'll see, are related. I will relate them together. I'm going to talk about the polystyrene hive equipment that I've had in service. And I'm also going to talk about some of the experiences of using that more along the lines of dealing with hives that have just super incredible powers. Supreme hives, I'm going to call them, and you'll understand that as I lay it all out. 
I have, on a good number of occasions, expressed my affinity for my alternative, that's what I considered it, polyhive, that I pressed into service. I always wanted to know how they worked, I thought they were intriguing, but I never really ever expanded on why I liked it, and that's going to get solved today. So for the first topic, I'm going to run through my history with the hive. I'm going to share my impressions. I'm going to talk about the actual physical equipment that I have put in service. And then I'm going to detail some of my experiences and ideas. It should provide a baseline day in the life of using the particular hive that I purchased. My intention is to offer the historical view of my interaction from first contact with that equipment to modern day as part one of a two-part feature. I'm going to spend topic number two in this episode not on part two, but on my different but related topic as it is of the polyhive being so good that it causes problems. That's so weird, isn't it? If you'll trust me then, I'll bridge that topic, the second topic, to the next episode, which is part two to come, and it will catapult me to the 2021 beekeeping objectives that I'm going to set as the year 2020 comes to a close. Uh, it's kind of funny how I laid it all out without knowing what I'm going to say. It sounds all nebulous, but I hope if you stay with me and you have a little patience, you'll understand the reasons for why I structured all this the way that I did. There'll be no local hive report for this episode, but I do have a few closing comments at the end. I would hope you stick around for those. So poly part one, why big hives are not necessarily better, and some closing comments for the episode all along the way, will set the stage for poly hives part two in episode number 183. Good, let's go. Topic number one, this is part one, poly colonies. I've been thinking about recording this topic for quite some time now. As I sit here today recording this, I have a sense that this is going to be an important entry in my podcasting catalog, as it's going to signify a turning point about how we're going to keep bees. For the past eight years, I've been running an experiment of sorts, and what is to follow is an amalgamation of observations and impressions of my one polystyrene hive that I've had in service. I can state up front that I am on the cusp of making a more concerted push to use polystyrene hives in our operation, and I wanted to share the reasons why. This is going to be the first part of a two-part topic on polyhives. The first installment will focus on the activities up until now, and the second will focus on what's to come with my plans outline for poly use and why. In some ways, this might manifest as an endorsement for the polystyrene form factor, and I suppose I could say that up front. I'm not paid by polyhive producers, so what you hear is just simply my honest assessment of experiences leading to behaviors. I have a lot to cover, so let me get started with some background. My first encounter with the polystyrene format was in the summer of 2012. I learned that polyhives were an option in hive materials, 
I'd read someone's account online in a forum of how they were deployed in the Nordics, especially in areas of extreme cold and how they were advantageous in those places. I looked it up and I started to get exposed to it, but there was not a lot of information readily available about it. And I just logged it as a curiosity and moved along. What it did was open my eyes to the possibility of a different and possibly better thermodynamic option for keeping bees. And I was in that phase, and still I don't think I've grown out of it, of trying to figure out how to build a better hive. But polystyrene, it was such an odd thing to consider. How could a beehive made up of cooler material ever hold up? That was my first notion of it. And as such, I didn't give it a lot of gravitas. I remember asking Stan Wozniowski, who was the closest thing I had to a mentor back then, um, about them. Had he seen them? Because he was well-traveled. And he shared with me that the ones that he had seen were terrible. He expanded that they were not soft like a styrofoam cooler and that they did have some rigidity. But in his estimation, the ones that he saw were easy to break. They were uh, riddled with problems when squirrels and other creatures would destroy them. And in good order, he advised me to forego any notions of finding something good to use. And so I put it away. I really just kind of left it. That changed in January 2013. I attended my first national conference. It was really eye-opening. And if I go back and remember, Stan was there, and he was like an ambassador in beekeeping. I had never met anyone of interest. Um, and he started introducing me to names that I had only encountered on forums and bee culture, seen presentations online. Kim Flottam, Sue Kobe, the owner of Kelly Beekeeping. Uh, yeah, sorry, I forget what his name was. Jennifer Berry, and the list goes on. Stan would walk up, chat with them, and say, this is Kevin. <laughs> you know, It was kind of cool. And I think the only thing that rivaled that first ABF conference for me was being able to go to the show floor and see all the beekeeping equipment. I had never seen anything other than catalogs. And there was every type of gadget and gizmo on display. I vividly remember being excited about one thing in that show, this new hive that was being introduced to America, the Paradise Bee Company Bee Box Polystyrene Hive. I just did this a moment ago as I went and looked at all the photos from the shows that I took because I had a camera, of course, and I didn't even know what these things were at the time. But I have a lot of different photos of them as they stood out for me. And on the drive home, my brain was on that cement paint-coated 10-frame Langstroth format polystyrene hive. As you can imagine, if you've listened to me long enough, it was like one of those Red Rider BB gun moments for me. And I knew I had to get one for the upcoming season. This began what I could refer to as my poly period of discovery. Of course, I ordered one, and I painted it and put it together and placed it into service May 2013, and I've had experience with it for seven seasons. 
Performance-wise, it's met all my objectives. One of the first things I'll say is that appearance-wise, the materials of the hive pretty much look exactly like the day I deployed it. There's a few superficial dings and the paint has picked up some stains and dark spots. Probably more of my fault. I painted it light gray, but the actual hive material is in really good condition. The parts that seem to show the most wear, and it's mostly because they're dirty looking, are the bottom board and the top lid. I do have a remedy for that, by the way, which I'll talk about later. So the first season with the hive was successful. It came out of winter with a large colony. The hive did not show any of the complications that Stan and I discussed about other versions. And it's a good time to say that this hive box, the B-Box polystyrene hive, is the one that I chose. I have looked at, over the years, the Lyson one and some of the other offerings. They're okay, but this is the one that I like, and it's the one I'm going to talk about exclusively. I know there's other beekeepers out there that run the other variations of uh, what's available out in the marketplace, but... I can't speak to them. I'm just going to speak solely to my experience with the B-Box one. So that first winter, I had a lot of questions. I wondered about moisture problems and whether the substrate would have any issues. If anything, it was my strongest hive in spring, and I was excited to see how the hive would perform with a full-size colony in it. Because as you might imagine, the first season started with a split, and the colony had to build to full strength. And now it's time to see how that full colony performed coming out of winter. Meaning, it started with a single box, it built up to be about two boxes, and now it was going to be 10 frames over 10 frames, and I could start putting honey supers on it, full of bees. A funny thing happened along the way that slowed down my personal progress and intimacy with the inner workings of this hive. That was the year that I decided to have a second yard for a period of time. And I made a decision to move this hive over to that second yard. And as such, I didn't have the frequent touches with it that I might have had should it have been in my own backyard. Now, I could see every time I went out to the out yard that it was a good performer. And while conditions changed with that out yard, unfortunately, the uh, homeowner passed away and I ended up bringing my setup back home. It was actually fortuitous because then I got a sense to see how the hive performed in the span of a few seasons, and I could walk out to the yard every day if I had to and look at it and see how it was doing. So I think you're getting to the point that I feel like this was a good choice. And why do I think it's emerged as a candidate? So what has me enamored with the hive? Frankly, it could be summed up in one word. And I think this is an important word, stability. It may not have been the word you were expecting. But the reason I chose it is because what I observed is a colony performing what I wanted it to do, when I wanted it to do it, and in all cases, optimally, by comparison to the regular hives that I was running in my yard. I would have two colonies coming out of winter in basically the same shape. One was in woodenware, and the other one was in the poly box. The poly colony outperformed 
the other is on all fronts. The ramp up in the anticipation of spring of the colony size for the season was on point. Proper number of bees, population build, drones, and so on. The bee population was 10 to 15% bigger on comparison when it counts as the nectar flow broke. The bees seemed more industrious. It's hard to quantify some of these things that I'm going to share because each colony performs on its own merit. Was it possible that the queen was better in the hive? Maybe. But the answer is year after year after year, this colony did better than the others. I thought maybe at first it was me with googly-eyed glasses, but when I look at my hive inspection reports, there were more positive reports of key metrics of hive success criteria like the ones I just rattled off. Even if you did not take notes like I did, you can see with your own eyes that the polyhive was outperforming the colony sitting next to them on a regular basis. Now one constant, which is a metric you could measure, is honey production. I'm confident when I say this, and I would bet that my local hive reports reflect this over the years, that as long as that hive has been in service, it's produced the most honey for my apiary. That's true even in 2020, as it gave me four mostly full supers of honey this season more than the other hives did. In those first few years, I had one reservation about the equipment, and it required time and observation to put it to rest. If you read the literature supplied with the hive equipment, there are recommendations about moving the hive to the shade in the summertime and adjusting the roof for ventilation so the colonies don't overheat in warm temperatures. The roof design allows you to invert the cover and it creates large openings under the front and back edges for air escape. My initial impression was that, I'm at work all day. How am I going to manage this on days where the forecast should be in the danger zone? The truth of the matter is it never materialized. And we did have runs over these years of 100 degree plus days. And I've never observed any detriment to the colony. I personally think that the insulative properties of this hive actually work in the opposite respect and that the hive is better equipped to deal with the heat. While the roof is designed so it can be flipped upside down to allow for ventilation in an air gap, I have not observed any periods of hive meltdowns or overheating that required me to use it. In reflecting on the instructions, I have to wonder if someone in Finland, where their hive is manufactured, postulated that what might happen if this equipment was used in a Texas summer. We in New Jersey are probably more aligned to a Finland summer than Texas. And if you're in Texas, Arizona, Florida, places that are hotter in the summer or more tropical, then maybe you want to follow that guidance. But in New Jersey, no problem. The hives can remain covered with no harmful effects to the colony. My bet is that's probably true for about 40 of the 50 states uh, just right out of the gate. As I think about it, if anything... I see more bearding on some of the wooden hives that employ a notch opening in the inner cover. And you would think that the poly hive would employ bearding as it has no upper notch to let the hot air escape. The top is sealed. 
but even so, I don't see a lot of bearding on this hive. It kind of supports my observation that the bees can decide if the heat gets in and how much heat goes out as the insulation properties of the polyhive slow down heat transfer in and out of the substrate. And that provides for a more stable interior temperature control by the colony. In hearing how I've had an affinity about this equipment over the years of service, you might ask yourself, well, why didn't I go into this deeper, sooner? For that answer, I think I have to say that I had some reservations and it held me back. The truth is I'm pragmatic. I accumulate and I do not let go of things too often and my garage is full. It's been years and years since I've needed to purchase any hive equipment for increases. In the beginning, I bought a reasonable cache of equipment early on, and I've had the fortune of winning a few raffles and picked up a few sets here and there, and through some donations and home-built pieces, I am fortunate enough to have more than enough equipment at my disposal. I always wanted to make sure that if something called for a piece of equipment, I wouldn't be called short. So I had always been working on, in the background, building out equipment to make sure that I could cover any of my needs. Now, I have equipment full of garage, whatever I have. My investments over the years have been in alternative high form factors. If you've listened to the show, you know I bought a Waré, I built two top bars, I have a lands hive and such. But in the back of my mind, I... I always wanted to have a reason to go explore the polys better because I knew how well they were doing. My move to poly has been lingering and two things happened that instigated me taking action. The first is a benefit from a listener. Doug Potter sent me a note out of the blue after tuning in and hearing me talk about my affinity for the polyhive that I have. And he said he was going to send me something. This was really unique for me. Who's going to send me something? I, I think once or twice people have sent me things after listening to the show. But this one was a hive. <laughs> I, I think that is a first. But it turns out Doug is a fan too of poly hives. And he deployed a number of these poly hives similar to the bee box. And was tinkering with a custom bottom board and roof design. And he wanted me to see it. When I got the hive, I didn't have anything to put in it, so it sat over winter. But you can bet that I was eager to put something in it in the spring, and at the next opportunity, I put a swarm in the box and used it for part of a season. That was earlier this year, 2020. And immediately, I had an impression about the versatility and the utility of the box that he sent me, which was the same company, but instead of a 10 frame form factor it was a six frame box that's serendipity now bob claus and i if you've listened to the show had plans to partner on queen rearing and as such we needed to make setups for queen castles while i was planning all spring my original plan was to use my garden hive boxes for the purpose but you know i was only lukewarm on that because the frame size in my garden hive is unconventional and I wasn't sure that I wanted to figure out a system for upscaling the small boutique EcoBox frames, which are about six or eight inches across, to a full-size Langstroth frame. And the turning point was, 
when I discovered that the six-frame poly box that Doug sent me had a channel in the center that allowed you to employ a divider. When Doug sent me the box, he sent me the custom bottom board, and as such, I wasn't aware that the default bottom board design, which accommodates two entrances, one in the front and one in the back, was completely designed to be a queen castle, and if you put the divider in, the six-frame box becomes two three-frames. Now, I had built, out of conventional Langstroth boxes, queen castles. I used a saw, I cut the channel, I put a divider in, but I never liked them. There was always this tolerance gap problem with those hives, and the bees could pass through, and for whatever reason, I just didn't take an affinity to them. But upon discovering that this six-frame box had that in as a design, it was game on. I had my reason to consider the six-frame boxes. I evaluated the utility of what Doug had sent me, and upon decided to experiment with them for a queen-rearing season. And I promptly ordered two hive setups and one additional box to de detail out three stacks. So to say that in another way, I was going to end up with a bottom board and roof combination for the one hive that Doug sent me, plus a second box, so it would be a six over six, and two new setups that were six over six. And my plan was we were going to go through the Nico, raise tons of queens, put them in the three-frame sides, split down the middle for queen castle, and then as the boxes grew, I would pull the divider out. Now, I said a moment ago, and I wanted to come back and not lose this, that there were two things that instigated taking the leap. The other thing, quite frankly, is COVID. I think if I had been on the normal treadmill of life this year, I would have never taken the effort to order, construct, paint, and put multiple hives into service. I also feel like I saved a lot of money this year not driving to work. So just the fuel costs alone allowed me to have a little leeway to expend some money in the operation, which I've been trying to avoid lately. Well, you know, there's also that free time to ponder the wonders of the universe and have garage time on the weekends since you're not going anywhere. All of that played a factor in the trigger, you know, the factor in pulling the trigger for this. I spent a lot of time cleaning up the garage, organizing all my equipment and pondering my next moves in beekeeping. And I simply could not ignore that underlying voice in the background asking to evaluate polyhive performance and why not try more of that direction in beekeeping. You know, truth be told, I know from different things that there's a lot of different polyhive formats out there in the smaller form factor, but most of it is used for queen rearing, meaning small boxes. I didn't even know the six frame ones existed. I really just considered that I was going to buy more 10 frame equipment, but you know, the weight of a 10 frame hive, especially with full deeps and stuff, I don't know. And it was the perfect storm for me to discover the six frame equipment was a better way to go. I think I'm going to use that impression to move to talking about the pros and cons of poly equipment to tell you what I've learned over the last number of years and also to use that as a stage to explain
for part two, why I might choose six frame equipment over 10 or mix them. So you got the impression the hive works well. That's my impression. But how well is it to work the hive? In use, the hive has its pros and cons, and I'm going to spend some time talking about that. And the first thing I'll talk about is durability. You would think something made of foam would not stand up. I would venture to say that if you've never encountered these hives, you may not know what I mean when I say high-density foam, which is what this equipment is made of. I think the best way to, that I can describe it is it's not too far from a dense plastic substrate. I think about like uh, coolers that you have to go to the, you know, backyard tailgating party, that kind of plastic. It's not hard, but it's not soft. And in this case, it's made of foam. It would not depress if you pushed into it, and it would not give too much if, say, you pinched it between your fingers, but you can squish it a little bit. If you took something hard like a hammer and you struck it, you would leave a dent or a depression, but you wouldn't break it. I would just call it appreciable damage. If you did happen to ding it, say you dropped it and it fell on the corner with all the weight, I would imagine that it would dent. But I would imagine, and I have experienced, that it stands the blow. And sometimes with this material, when you ding it, eventually it just comes back out on its own. As to my 10-frame hive, I have moved it off stands, I put it on bottom boards, I put it on my hive bench, I've loaded it into boxes in my cart. It's none the worse for the wear. You said another way, while I'm not rough handling it, I don't rough handle my wooden equipment. I'm not weight glove with it either. And so far, after all the seasons of use, I would say it looks pretty darn good. It's not broken. It's not cracked. It's not dented. It's not dinged too much. It really looks good. If anything, the only thing that I would say about it is it's got some stains and dark spots, normal wear and tear. So as I think about what I'm describing, I would realize that a lot of people have never actually seen one. I'm going to talk a little bit about the design of the pieces. We'll start with a regular box. As you can imagine, each box is made up of four sides. The slab sides have three tenons on the end. And for fitting them together, they fit snugly into the mortise holes that are formed at the end pieces. Yeah. Those are woodworking tones, so if you didn't follow that, they have a shape protrusions that fit snugly into holes <laughs> for me. <laughs> the design of the mortise and tenon system are keyed so that when you're assembling it, you can't put the, cart the parts together incorrectly. They're uniquely shaped tenons, as each tenon is spaced in a specific way from each other, so that even if you tried to mate it, and you had one end, say, upside down or turned, for example, the tenons wouldn't match up to go in the holes. This little touch is an example of something I want to call out about the brand that I chose, the B-Box. And one of the reasons that I chose it, or will choose it going forward, is that over other poly offerings in the marketplace, um, 
The design is just well thought out. I'm going to use a word, clever. Let's talk about design. As you assemble the hive components, you see the different fit and finish and features of the individual pieces. You hold them in your hands. And then you're delighted to see how they work as a whole. Even that does not describe the other aspects that are delightful, like the rim that interlocks with the top of the boxes and also serves as the perfect ledge for a conventional wooden box to sit flush in the stack. Let me use, I'll, I'll use that example. I'll describe that feature a little more so it's more evident. The poly material is thicker than normal wooden wear, a normal wooden box. Wooden hives are three quarters of an inch thick. The poly boxes are one and three eighths inch thick, wide on the sides, and they come to corners of the boxes that taper out to an inch and a half. On the bottom, they have a three-quarter inch recess followed by a tapered rim. And on the top, they have a three-quarter inch rim that is bordered by a flat plane. If you think about the way that works, the rim on the top of one box is three-quarters of an inch high, and it nestles into the depression of the box sitting over it and results in an interlocking connection when they're stacked. To be clear about that, the protrusion sitting in the depression of the box creates an overlap. It's flat, it comes down, and then it goes across. And when the two boxes nestle together, it creates an airtight seal. In contrast, a wooden box is a flat bottom sitting on a flat top or whatever that may be. And you could take a playing card, for example, and slide it through any of the gaps. On the polyhive, you would slide it in and it would have to go up and then across in order to slide through. So hopefully you understand how that mating connection works. In the end, what it means is that no air passes through that gap in any way, and it creates a more airtight seal than a conventional hive. I find this particular feature beneficial in another way, as I mentioned a moment ago. That rim sitting up on the thicker substrate, you could take a typical honey super and put it over top of a poly box, and it will fit just right on the protrusion that sits up. It sits on that protrusion. And then, if you want, you could take another poly box or regular box and put it on top of the woodenware. If it were a poly box, it would sit right down, and the three-quarter inch protrusion slides right up into the gap of the poly box sitting over top of it, and you could literally just put it right in the middle of the stack, easy peasy. I find this particular feature as another way of saying what I mentioned a moment ago. It's just smart. It's a smart way to understand that beekeepers have woodenware equipment. And if you really wanted to, you could run two polys on the bottom and use wooden supers across the top. And then when winter comes, take the wooden stuff off and put the poly lid down and you got insulation for the winter. Yeah, several aspects of this hive equipment design are just really well thought out. Coming back to another design element, I want to talk about the handholds. 
The handholds are really large. And unlike woodenware where you could just get your fingertips in, the thickness of the box allows you to get your fingers in even further. And it's just another one of those subtle design touches. On this company's boxes, the handholds on the front and the back, just as you would expect, along with the sides. There's an observation about the way the handholds work that I could share, and it's this. I think they do compromise the insulation some. They're pretty big. When I shoot videos of the hive with my FLIR, the hive is cold. What I mean by that is there's no evidence, like with woodenware, of where the bees are. With woodenware, the heat is translating out of the wood in a way that the FLIR can pick it up. With the polys, the only heat you register is a trace amount of heat escaping at the entrance, and the entrance is far away from the cluster. Now, I did on rare occasions pick up some heat coming through where the handholds are. I'll speculate that if the cluster is tight to the inside of the front or side of the box, that the heat can resonate through the thinner areas of poly where the handholds are cut out. But again, I see this as rare. There's only a few occasions where I could pick up the trace signature of warmth coming through. Now, perhaps if the handholds were not as deep, maybe that wouldn't happen. But I think ultimately it's still superior to wood based on the readings. What's more conventional is when the colony is away from the walls, meaning centered in the middle of the hive, you don't see the signature at all. That's usually what I've observed, which leads me to believe that the stability inside the hive is better. Now, bee boxes, the design that I use, have protected edges. On the top and bottom of the fronts and backs of the hive bodies. These protected edges are signature of these hives. They're golden colored, they're made of hard plastic, and they're really form fitted to interlock on the foam, and they really stay put once they're fastened to the equipment. You would hope that they're not going to pop off or warp or move. They don't. They lock in and they never come out. And if you have to, you can take them off and put them right back and they go exactly where they would be. Now, you would think made out of hardened plastic, they would be brittle. And then even more so, you could be concerned about cold. But the ones that I have look exactly the same today as the first day I put them into service, except for maybe some propolis stains. They have no scuffs, they have no scrapes, they have no cracks. And believe me, you're using hive tools and going in and prying against them. You would think when they were cold and you're using a metal hive tool, you might damage them. I found that you could pry as hard as you want with a metal hive tool and the plastic. It, it gives you perfect protection and none of that transfers to the foam in any way. If I have one nit about the design is that the ridge that I described earlier, the way the taper is for the box that goes up and creates something for the next box to interlock, it creates a challenge because it limits the purchase of your hive tool going inside to pry the boxes apart. With a full deep box, where you damage your woodenware, by the way, you can get your hive tool in all the way through the three-quarter inch thickness. 
when you put it in the polyhive, you go in three quarter and you encounter a barrier. Now, ironically, you're still three quarters of the way in, but you're literally only able to use the tip of your hive tool. There are times with a hive that is made of woodenware where you can get in three quarters and then work to the side and get deeper in and pry up on the side box. Can't do that with a polyhive. It's a rare occasion, a rare occurrence that the boxes are locked together so badly that you can't get the leverage you need in that space to pry, but it does happen. Now, I can't recall any time when I just couldn't get the boxes apart. I don't think that's a problem. I, I guess I kind of have to share one Kevin moment. There's one thing, and it's all about me. <laughs> a metal hive tool on the plastic makes odd contact when it comes into touch like the feel. It's odd. It almost feels scratchy like nails on a blackboard. It skeeves me out. I know that's weird, but I felt that odd touch on more than one occasion. The plastic is so hard that the contact of it with the metal makes this really kind of weird feeling scraping sound. I don't think you should make anything out of it, but texturally, it's just this oddity that I have a problem with. End of Kevin moment. In further exploration of the hive design, I want to talk some about how the frames work inside the box, the interior. If it's not evident, the box accepts conventional Langstroth frames. 10 frames in this 10 frame setup. And just like a regular box, the inside dimensions are akin to 10 frames fit with some space on one side so you can move a frame to the open space, but it still maintains B space and it's free to extract that frame. The frames sit in a rabbited recess like a wooden box. There's part of a one-piece plastic protective edge that I was describing. The plastic that comes up over the edge where you pry against is also the plastic that comes down and creates where the frame rest sits. And that plastic does a good job at preventing propolis from sticking to it. And I've not had a problem when working the inside part of the plastic at extracting frames and using my hive tool and breaking or cracking the plastic. No problem there. Actually, if you think about it, the flat surface that the frames sit down on has a little thin plastic rib that runs the entire distance and it allows the frames to sit up on that rib and they don't make full flat contact to sit on the frame rest. Again, another one of those design fit and finish things, making the ridge for the frames to sit on results in less propolization of the frames being glued to the box and makes them easier to extract. When it comes to the rabbit design, I am gonna say there's one design flaw. It concerns the depth of the frame rests. I'm not sure if it has to do with the manufacturing of the frames that I chose, which were built independent in the B box, but frames are frames. Usually the ears and the shape are conventional. But I think this is really a design problem. And if there's one thing I will call out about the hives, it's this. I would like to see the frames sit a skosh lower in the box. 
when I set 10 frames in the box and look at the top bar of the frame, where it sits in relation to the top edge of the rim of the box, it's just about flush. To picture that, imagine you have your frame sitting in the box and you run your hand across the top of the frame. When you get to the end, it doesn't hit the edge of the box. It goes flush with the plane of the top surface of the box edge. If you did that in a conventional Langstroth box from, say, Man Lake, you would come to the edge and you would hit the woodenware and you would have to come up a smidge and then you would go to the top plane of the edge of the box. These are flush. It seems to me through observation that a traditional wooden box sits just a skosh lower. Maybe it's an eighth of an inch or so. I don't know if I've ever measured it. Now, in the grand scheme of things, when you use the full poly system, one poly box over top of the other, you don't end up with a frame game problem because the frames maintain B spaces with any of the poly boxes that would be above and below. This might not necessarily be true if you put a conventional woodenware on the rim like I described earlier. But, you know, if I think about it, when I've done that, I have not run into problems with the bees gluing the bottom of the frame of my honey supers to the box underneath it. What I have seen, and this is a concern, is that when I put the factory roof on the hive, it sits tight to the top edge of the frames. And I find that colonies, especially ones that propolize everything, tend to create a propolized encapsulation of the end bars. They propolize the tops of the bars about two inches in. And if you have a colony that builds a lot of propolis, well, sometimes the roof can be hard to pry off. Unlike the top edge of a hive box, the roof does not have that hard plastic. It's all polystyrene. And my roof has a few minor gouges where I've had to use a lot of pry force to get it freed from the box because it's been propolized down. Now, as I describe this, it might be noted that this box does not have a traditional inner cover with the roof. The roof is designed to nestle down right on the box. Kevin moment. I used this configuration for several years with no difficulty. You might recall me telling in a local hive report one winter that I had a problem with the bottom entrance of my 10-frame poly. It got clogged and the bees perished as a result. They had no other way to get out other than the entrance which was clogged. Beekeeper error. Now what I do is I take a customary inner cover from a wooden hive setup and I put it underneath my poly and I run an inner cover. It does two things. It solves the problem that I just described because it raises the poly up and that inner cover has a built-in little notch out the front, which I'm going to say is good and bad. It provides an alternative entrance, which was the reason I employed it. But it also allows air to escape, which may or may not be a good thing because you want the bees to be able to control. I feel like it's a great compromise. And if the bees want to control the in interior thermoregulation of air movement, they'll close that gap. And I've seen them do that, actually, with this hive. 
they'll close it down just to the point where one bee can peek its nose out, and that's the extent of it. Wait a minute, does a bee have a nose? <laughs> so it's kind of a fail-safe, and it's a problem resolution all in one. Now, one of the things I will say about that particular roof design is be the way that it sits, it's not flat like a pancake on the bottom. From the outer edge, it comes in flat for about two inches, and then it has a step up of about an eighth of an inch to a quarter inch, and then it goes across, and it has like this little indentation. When I set that box the roof over top of the box that flat part that i just described sits down on the frames and when the bees propolize i see them propolize from the far end of the top bar in about two inches and then they stop they tend to propolize that gap where the flat sits down when i take an inner cover conventional wooden one and i put them in that goes away. So I have chosen to use inner covers underneath the top cover of the hive for the 10 frame. So I've talked about different design elements. There's a whole bunch of other things. And given timing, I can't go through them all. But I do want to go through some odds and ends. And in no particular order, I've got to go over a couple other things about this equipment. First one is painting. You paint these once, and they're good for life. There's a lot of different things they recommend you could paint with. I use dry lock cement paint. And as far as I know, you just simply have to paint them so that the raw material is not exposed to the sun, because if it were, it has a possibility of degrading. Somebody said to me in the beginning, dry lock paint is the one you use. And you should know that when you paint with it, it's what you're supposed to paint your basement wall on the outside of your house. It has a sandy texture to it. I don't know if you could talk to your box store and say, don't put the sandy stuff in it. I don't know how that works. I think the actual base comes with that mixed in. If you don't want that sandy texture, my guess is you could probably paint it with some other alternative. I just picked dry lock from the beginning and I've been using it ever since. I actually like it. The polystyrene hard dense has a smooth kind of slippery feel to it immediately when you paint it with the stuff it gives you texture the paint is held up perfectly except for the, the blemishes and honestly that's my fault i chose a super light gray color which shows every you know stain the hives look great the ones that I put in service in 2012, there's no peeling, no cracking, no anything. Painted, done. If you paint them, the claim is they will never rot. And one thing I can say for sure is the hive sits in the woods where I worried about birds and raccoons and squirrels and chipmunks and woodpeckers and nothing so far has pecked, clawed, chewed on any of it in any way. No ant holes, no mice holes, nothing. Knock on wood, the hive is completely intact. I'm, and I literally am in the woods, and all those critters are in there all the time. So, uh, you know, my personal experience is no issues. And I wonder if maybe the paint surface deters them from considering it. I, I don't know. 
When you're working these hives, you have to get used to the idea that you can't pry against the sides. To be more precise, assume that you're going after frame one or 10 inside the box. When you're doing that, you can't lay your hard metal hive tool against the inside foam and pry up. You can, but you're gonna leave an impression. And yeah, the poly is dense enough for you to get leverage, but it's gonna leave a mark. That doesn't mean that I haven't done it, <laughs> you know, and in most cases, the poly springs back to shape in time, but my boxes have an off ding or two from years of use. Nothing of concern. And again, because the thickness of the substrate, that's all on the inside inner edges, it's not even visible from the outside. But, you know, you have to adjust when working with this hive. It's better to go between, say, frames one and two, pry the frame loose, and leverage against the wooden top bar on the inside versus leverage against the poly outside. One last thing about odds and ends um, re regarding the actual boxes is assembly. Easy peasy. In the original build of my 10 frame, I used tight bond brand glue. I noticed after a few years that the tight bond broke. It held really well and then it gave up the ghost. I would pry on a frame and if the frame moved out to the side of the hive, when it started to push away, the side would separate from the front. And I would just grab the outside of the box and squeeze it back together, but that was not going to work. So at one point when I took the 10 frame out of service, I changed to POR, P-O-R brand, Uhu POR. I know, uh, you could look on the YouTube channel and whatever, you'll see how I put those boxes together. But this stuff is polystyrene glue and it locked them up tight. They're as solid as a box that had been screwed together. So my recommendation is if you're gonna go this route, invest in the better glue. Type on was something that's probably readily available. The Uhu, U-H-U, I call it Uhu, I don't even know if that's how you say it. That was available through the web. I mentioned that the paint and the boxes last a lifetime. That's good and bad, I suppose, because if you think about the recycling aspect, I don't know, I do concern myself about the environment. Polystyrene as a substrate for building materials or whatever you're gonna use comes in many forms. And this particular polystyrene is recyclable. Recyclers can take this dense polystyrene and compact it so it can be broken down into pellets. Now, I don't know if the fact that I painted it wrecks that. I, I don't know. I just don't have enough wherewithal to understand the recycling supply chain and how these fit. But certainly when the hives come from the factory, there is information that when you're done with its service, it is recyclable and it's stamped with the number on the side. They take the dense polystyrene and they make pellets out of it. And then they transform those pellets to make fence panels. You know, those fences that you see. Um, plant pots, typical plastic ones, roof tiles, even traffic cones. They could be reused for that. So, 
I'm not going to be a shill and tell you that recycling is ubiquitous for this stuff and that there are not true problems with the recycling supply chain with this. But what I can say is I think these hives could last a lifetime. And if you agree with the marketing that shows that they are recyclable, there is a legitimate waste stream option for this material. Depending on how feasibility turns out for recycling, this is either a pro or con on whether you want to go this route with these materials. I think of it this way. Um, I believe that the solution for recycling, maybe this is wishful thinking, is tepid at best right now. But in time, the, the human race is going to have to figure out what to do with waste. And they're going to find ingenious ways to melt plastics, redo different metals or whatever. And eventually this stuff will end up turning into some way of being a resource. The problem today that I know about, I'm on a sidebar, sorry, is that it's easier to just do new and keep adding new materials in and not recycle because of what it costs to recycle. But it is on my mind because here I am talking about it. In this topic, which is heading towards an hour, two more points about equipment impressions. I want to talk about the bottom board and the roof. The bottom board is engineered just like the rest of the hive, and it's really well designed. It has a relief cutout in the middle of the floor and comes from the factory with a screen insert. To be clear, it's not a full screen bottom board, but more like a panel with a screen in the bottom. If I'm being honest, I pulled out the screen and stapled in a solid wooden shim. <laughs> I think the reason it's there is more for airflow and ventilation than to be a screen bottom board for integrated pest management. But I have no intention of leaving a screen open for winter, and I've come by the way of thinking that the bees will ventilate the hive and no amount of appreciable mites are going to fall through that screen, so I made a command decision and closed it off. One other thing about the bottom board, the front entrance of the hive has a trailing slit in it, meaning there's a, a slit on the left side, slit on the right side, and there's a slit that goes all the way across the bottom. When you look at the front entrance, you say, well, what is that slit for? What's the purpose? It's for the hive entrance reducer. The entrance reducer is an engineered piece with sliding doors in it, and it's made out of the same hard gold plastic that's used for the rest of the hive. The entrance reducer that comes with the hive gets a solid meh from me. It's all right. For a long while, I created a more traditional wooden one with a thin entrance that slid under that gap and that's what I used. I stuck the factory one on the shelf because I didn't particularly like it in the beginning and I actually lost track of it. But when I had that problem where the entrance reducer that I was using got clogged and I lost the colony, I started thinking to myself I might be better off looking again at the one that came from the factory and this year prior to the colony meeting its demise I put it back into service. It's still meh. 
Turning to the roof, as I described it earlier, but I wanted to disclose one feature that was novel about its design. The top edge of the roof has a ridge. Perhaps you might have guessed this, but the designers made it so that it can flip over and sit down, nestle over the hive when it's inverted. So even the top flat is not flat. It's got this tapered, contoured, textured design that makes it sit upside down. Why would you do that? Because the fronts and the backs of the design, the tapers, have a little relief to them. And when it's inverted and nestled down over the, over the high body below it, it creates a front and rear open slit, I'm guessing for the purpose of ventilation. But it also provides easy access to honey foragers, almost like a top entrance. The gap is short all the way across, and I would think that a hive could defend its colony through patrolling that area. And it's almost, if I could say, like a takeoff on an Emory shim. Now, personally, I've never used it in this manner, meaning flip the lid over and leave those ventilation gaps out. But I've seen others with these hives on the internet, when I look on the web, do that. And the only thing I would say to you is, in a normal roof, you have the metal, and then you have the ridge that goes around that you have to paint, and you paint the outside of your boxes. But I don't think you would typically, on a woodenware hive, think about painting the inside. On the poly one, you actually would paint the bottom of the roof, because if you flipped it over, that polystyrene would be exposed to the sun and subject to degrading. My lids are not painted. I don't think I'll ever take the step to turn them over. In fact, I actually want the lid down over the hive to keep thermoregulation intact, and I'll explain more of that as we go along here. As I picture the roof in my head, I have to share one other thoughtful touch by the designers. The outer sculpted roof edge along the side, if you see how the side comes up and it transitions to the top, it's a tapered 90 degree bend. In the middle of the long run through the long side, there's a two inch section that's not as sharp. It almost looks like somebody took a chisel and cut it off and made it rounded. You think to yourself, what's the purpose of that? I've learned what the purpose of that is because I use it all the time. It's for a strap. If you're one of those people that runs a strap all the way around the hive from the bottom board, the bottom board relief has the same dimension where the sharp edge is, it's tapered. When you take a two inch wide strap and you run it from the top and you pull it cinched, the edge in the middle of the top has this rounded corner that lets that sit flush. If you didn't have it, it would probably compress those corners down. Again, just another thoughtful design element by the creators. So I think I've kind of covered where I wanted to go in part one here. I'll just come back to the impression of how does the hive work, right? I've talked about different characteristics, different design elements, different problems, chinks in the armor, but actually how the hive works. I come back to the word I used, stable. Uh, my experience is that the colonies just seem to do really well. They're stable. They seem healthy. They seem to be able to build brood whenever they want. 
In woodenware, sometimes you get into these spring patterns where it's cold, it's hot, it's cold, it's hot. In this hive, my guess is that whatever is going on in a woodenware hive is not going on inside this hive because the colony is able to maintain their temperatures. One thing I regret that I haven't done better is put broodminders in them or something to measure all that, but I could see it with my own eyes. You know, and there's a certain time where, you know, look, if you're, if you're making bread or something where you want to put a little vanilla in, you put a splash in and you know that that's good enough for, you know, maybe that's a terrible example because in baking you need to be precise. But when you look at an operation of a hive, you know whether or not it's doing its thing. I'm usually never concerned about the quality of the colony inside those hives. As long as the queen is vigorous and doing well, the colonies always seem to do really well. And I think it attributes to going back to like Tom Seeley and Darwinian beekeeping where he's discussing smaller chambers and what it's like to live in a bee tree with thicker walls where the thermodynamics tend to be more stable. Maybe I'm wishful thinking, but honestly, that, that's what I feel like. And uh, the only way to know is to move in this direction and do more of it. And so when I get to part two, I'm going to talk about my direction towards poly and with a twist. If you've been listening, you know that I'm heading towards the six frame instead of 10 frame equipment. I didn't even know I was going to do that, but now I know why. And I'm going to talk about that as we transition into part two. Before I do that, though, I am going to give one little hint, which is the next topic, and that will close out this episode. It's too good. <laughs> it's too good. In topic number two, I'll talk about how successful this hive has been over the last couple of seasons especially since I've been able to figure out some of the mite puzzle. And topic number two is going to be about bigger is not better. Topic number two, bigger is not better. This observation has been building for a while, and I've been silently deliberating what I'm seeing over the past few seasons, and now I'm going to split with keeping it to myself and bring it out into the open. The trigger or impetus of this was, ironically, the failure of the polyhive this summer and watching it implode. Now, this notion of bigger is not better, as I'm going to describe. It's probably not novel, and I'm positive that others have likely figured this out along the way, at least one concept of it, in that big hives tend to be sometimes problematic. So I'm not here to take credit for it. I'm simply looking to document it here in the show for the purpose of cataloging my thoughts. Which I think back incidentally is one of the charters of this show. It, this show was, after all, an effort to journal our beekeeping journey and take you along for the ride as we embrace the lifestyle. So bigger is not better. In a nutshell, what I've observed is the more problematic hives especially in this era of Varroa mite infestations, are the ones that are too successful. To understand that, one has to give the definition of too successful. I would define it loosely as they get too big for their own good, and they would have done just fine 
if they were moderate instead of booming. Now that still needs to be unpacked, but what I'm thinking is a bit of a Goldilocks syndrome. If you want colony health, you want the colony to have the right mixture of bees to sustain the colony for its needs. There's a ratio of bees needed from population overall to support the activities within the hive environment. I'm talking about nurse bees, guard bees, wax building bees, undertakers, propolis gatherers, pollen gatherers, water retrievers, nectar gatherers, you, you know, the things that happen inside of a colony ecosystem. If the colony does not have enough bees to do the jobs in the colony, the hive is deficient. The colony is deficient. If they have enough, the colony operates and proceeds as normal. Where we humans have stepped in is doing what we always do. Somehow there's a profit margin in this. If I'm a beekeeping supplier selling equipment, who am I going to sell the most to? It's the commercial operation. So the commercial operation is going to drive what I offer for sale. That's maybe a bit of a stretch, but let's just go with that and say that predicated by the commercial undertone to sell equipment to commercial people who are designing their equipment to make a supreme workforce for pollination for honey. And also because we beekeepers don't want to see our hives swarm. We want the ability to grow capacity on demand for relieving swarm pressures. So the side effect of that commercialization aspect is a good colony has room to become a major colony. And some colonies are ambitious enough that with the right conditions, they can become a supreme colony. Supreme in every way. They have space to make more than normal comb for the operation. They could fill boxes and boxes of honey supers with surplus honey. They have more bees to forage and pollinate crops. And it's just an amazing machine, the supreme colony. Now, the bees will employ the extra space, to our delight, with excess. And we give them more room than they need. And it results in a larger nest to get that huge supreme workforce. Now, stop and sit on that for a second. That's a key point. And again, in this time of Varroa, it has an unintended consequence. You see, they have more room for a bigger nest, and the supreme hive takes advantage of it. Going back to describing the collapse of the polystyrene hive, it was a supreme hive in every way prior to its demise. It had frame after frame of capped brood. And my notes say at one point, it had six frames in the bottom deep that were wall-to-wall -wall carpets of brood. When I say wall-to-wall, -wall, I really mean that. One note says there was hardly any room stored in the corners for honey stored in the corners because the queen pretty much laid from bar to bar, side to side, and pushed the envelope using every cell she could put her abdomen in. On the surface, and as a beekeeper, what do I have to complain about? It's what we wanted. It's why, you know, if I were a commercial person, this would be nirvana. So really have nothing to complain about. 
But I knew from previous experience that if we had a reasonable nectar flow, this colony was going to be a honey-producing machine. And it didn't prove me wrong. I put honey supers on the top, and dang if they were not full in short order. I pulled two off, harvested them, put other honey supers on late in the season, and dang if they didn't fill them too. But with the good comes the dark. And given my past experience, I had a prediction of what was to come, and the colony, based on a few seasons' observation, was doomed. I decided it was going to run observations on that particular colony and let it run its course this year to see if my hypothesis that I had been building over the seasons was going to ring true. I monitored the hive for mites in the heart of the nectar flow and found 18 mites in the sample. It was clearly at a threshold to treat. Given the colony produced frame after frame of brood, much of it capped during the period when I took the sample, I chose Formic Pro to treat it. I had other options, but you probably know where I'm leading. I picked Formic because it's proven to penetrate the cappings and get the mites in the cell. And that had to happen if I were going to get this mite situation under control. The answer was, eh. After the course of the treatment, we were in July. Ideally, what I would have hoped for is that the hive would have knocked all the mites out, and from July to whenever, they would have started to build whatever winter colony they wanted, and the mites would have been uh, gone to a level that the hive would have been healthy. Of course, after the treatment, we were in July, the colony was still massive and producing at all the jobs I described before, but you could see things showing some sort of decline. What I'm talking about is you would think after a period of recovery, just a short period, that the hive would rebound, that the mites would have been knocked down, that healthier bees would have emerged, and that everything would have gotten hunky-dory going into the winter mode. That's not what happened. I'll cut to the chase and say, The patterns were awful. And you could look back and say, well, did Formic have an impression on that? Maybe they're pulling out the damaged brood of where the mites were killed, or uh, maybe, hopefully not, the queen was impacted by the treatment. But if you've been doing this long enough, you look and you start to see parasitic mite syndrome. If you've seen that before, and you observe bees with deformed wing virus, and you know what happened is the treatment was ineffective and the bees are ill. I waited a short period of time, and I realized just by looking, I didn't even have to monitor, the hive was still sick. I decided to go round two and put Apivar on the hive. That's what you're supposed to do, right? If you don't knock the mites down, you gotta go back and get them again. My hypothesis was that the formic might have knocked the mites back and maybe the apivar in the 56-day window would give that second knockout blow. I cut to the chase and say the outcome of the hive went into rapid state of decline, even with the apivar in the box. The brood patterns remained spotty. The brood showed signs of stress. 
There were makings of some European foul brood in there, which happens with stress. You see the little twisted melted larva. And I saw even more presence of the deformed wing virus. Bees walking on the, on the comb or bees out front of the hive. I have to take a moment and say that on another hive, sitting next to one that was monitoring, it was on the pad six feet away. That hive was average at best. Average. Good amount of bees, reasonable stores, well enough population to keep things going. But it was not a supreme hive. When the formic went into that hive, it did what it was supposed to do. Cleaned out the mites. The mite count stayed reasonable afterwards. And the colony proceeded with out fanfare, into the fall with a healthy functioning population. They did so well in the cedar hive, that's what I'm talking about, I didn't even have to feed it. They somehow, in the dearth of August, found enough stores, and with the early goldenrod flow, that they put eight or nine frames of capped honey across the box. And they're all set to overwinter. Colony has a large, healthy population. So how does this work? How does a moderate hive get through and the supreme hive just implode? What to make of this? Now, I've been seeing this pattern with strong hives and in my circles of contacting beekeepers all the time through training and forums and this and that, hearing about this problem with strong hives by others for two to three years now. I'm going to speculate, and this is complete speculation, that there's been conversation about more virulent, I hate that word, mites, and maybe that's tipped the scales to make these hives worse. I don't know. But I have cautioned people, because I've had visibility to this, to be ever vigilant about supreme hives, that they are mite factories too. I knew it was coming. In the case of this particular hive, I monitored it, I treated it, and the outcome was the hive collapsed, and I watched it go. And I was contemplating my next move as this hive was declining through the tail end of summer this year when it just put me out of my misery and absconded. The bad news for me was I didn't catch the absconding bees, and it sat out there for a day or two, and some of the bees got in and robbed it. And if there were any lingering mites in there, they got, they hitchhiked to the other hives. But when I discovered it, I did what the Bee Informed Partnership does recommend, which is immediately go clean that hive up, take it out, and put it away so bees couldn't get to it. After a period of time where I let it sit, and I know that the mites didn't have anything to feed on and couldn't and probably met their demise. I was able to take some of that comb where it was capped honey and put it out and let the bees rob it. Maybe not the best situation, but I do not want to take honey and put it in the stores. Anyway, that's not what I'm talking about. The thing is, is I watched it happen. I anticipated the outcome and it played out in the manner in which I thought it would. And I think I know why. It's really, as I've been saying, too much of a good thing. So now you have the rest of the time where you watched it happen, you had ideas of what was going to happen, and it actually happened, and you start to think, well, what, what should I do with it? Speculate. 
This is not me, Kevin, expressing facts. It's Kevin analyzing the situation and exploring what went wrong. If I work it backwards, the first thing I did was, how did the hives... No, sorry. Let me clean that up. I, don't, I hate making that mistake. How did the colony get so many mites? By the way, when you're on a roll and you're... The word colony and hive interchangeably... It really screws up people's minds. I'm sorry for that. <laughs> I mean to say colony, and I throw the word hive in. It's just a thing. But you can think that if I'm talking about the bees, I'm talking about the colony, and hive stands for the equipment that they live in. If I go back to my notes and I look at the beginnings of this colony in the spring, it was a split. It was a 10-frame split made from another colony early in the spring. When I say 10 frames, I mean I did a walk-away split of a 20-frame 2D hive and moved one of the box, one of the boxes, off the contents and all, over to the polyhive setup. Now, the polyhive was not in service earlier, and I literally pulled the 10 Langstroth frames out of woodenware and put it into an empty poly box sitting on a bottom board. Now, by all rights, splitting that colony should have resulted in a smaller mite threshold. And I know the origin of the hive was treated. It was treated last fall, so it would explicitly not come out of winter with a contingent of mites for multiplying. It should have had low mite thresholds, and it was a split. Two good things for it. So if I say I pulled 10 frames, actually eight of them were populated coming out of winter and early spring. They filled out within a week, and I put the second poly deep on top of that colony. And I pulled the outside frames up into the middle of the second deep, and I filled it in with foundational frames, maybe one or two drawn. But they had fresh foundation on them. Now that queen, she was a gem. The bees built out comb on that new foundation like nobody's business, and she laid eggs all spring and early summer. She was hammering away in there, and that hive was the most industrious in the yard. Like the old adage, though, when it comes to the mites, they'll tell two friends, and they'll tell two friends, and they'll tell two friends, and, well, let's take it by frames. They'll fill two frames, and then they'll fill two more frames, and then they'll fill two more frames. And it's well established that with the growth of the colony comes growth of the mites. But remember, I should have had smaller amount of mites. I was operating on the premise that the colony was not full size in the beginning. The mite growth curve would have been smaller. Now I know that's false. So we used to say if you started with a package or a nuke that was treated, you didn't have to worry too much in that first season for mites. Well, like that, this split didn't follow the rules. The mite population just went berserk. And why? Because it was a supreme colony. And even a split with low mite thresholds is subject, when it's a supreme colony, to build more mites than it can handle. That's a learning thing right away. It's a mite breeding factory. So observation number one, a starter colony or a moderate colony does not mean low mites come July. 
no matter the size of the colony coming out of winter, if they are supreme in July, it should be assumed that they are loaded with mites and that if you're going to do something about it, you need to get in there earlier. A second point of analysis. The adage is monitor and treat as needed. At this, I have failed. I have failed. I have yet to embrace the monitor every month thing. I'm playing the horses with that notion, which I am just disproving that if the colony is small and moderate in the spring, I shouldn't have to worry about the mite threshold until they get to a certain depth, maybe early summer or peak population. My thought is that the colony growing should outgrow the mites until peak population. Now wait, I have to unpack that. I've held a notion that mites are in the hives. They're in there. There's something we have to live with. It is starting to become customary to treat with oxalic for some on Christmas Day or New Year's Day so that if you get them when they're broodless, prior to ramping up in the spring when the queen is laying in earnest, that hive will come out with a low population of mites. It'll start out of the gate with a low population. When you get to early summer, the mite growth should not be big enough to impact the hive. Okay. Uh, mites can be tolerated. Mites can be tolerated. But when it's a supreme hive, it's not. And the reason being is the carpets of brood. Now, we all think that the bees are in constant rotation in the summer. And that's true. They're 21 days to become a forager, and they generally spend 21 days as a forager in the heat of the summer where they're going day and night. I want to think about it in a different level, though. And this is, this is interesting. This is a new idea for me to think about how the hive plays out. I want you to picture early, middle, and late population impacts from mites. Now, let's just say the queen's going to town. She's producing thousands of bees. In the early days, coming out, even when you treated the bees and you had low mites, the number of bees coming into contact with mites as they are emerging is low. Colony health is healthy and vibrant. In the middle, as you're approaching July, August, after many cycles of mite growths where two frames, two frames, two frames, now they're in all the frames, the bees are still emerging at the same rate, but more and more of them are coming in contact with the mites. Now at that point, middle of the season, the ratio is still in favor of the bees, but the tide is turning. In a supreme hive, moved to late July, August time frame, mites are everywhere. Due to their population growth, and even when they're at peak population, the bees are starting to show impact because now all the bees emerging are coming out with mites. 
Now you consider a treatment. Even if you did it in the middle stage, didn't wait till July, August. The population itself takes a hit from formic. That's what I chose. It, it does impact some bees. If you put formic in a hive, you see dead bees at the entrance. If you have a weak queen or a problem, you could run into that. Maybe it kills some brood. So just the fact of formic in the hive, especially if you put it in for warm days, don't do that. Follow the instructions. But the hive is going to take a little bit of a punch. I'm going to speculate that the belief that formic gets under the capping is not as effective as we think or want it to be. I alluded to this in the last episode, and now I'm going to call it out. You have a hive in the middle or late stages of a mite infestation and you put formic in and you set the hive back by the chemical impact to the actual physical bees in the hive and the brood, but it's also not getting in there. My speculation. I have to consider if that's true or not because even after the formic, I still see mite loads. My wisdom and common sense tells me that it's certainly plausible that mites are still coming out with the bees and that if you have carpets and carpets of brood with tons and tons of bees covering that, that the penetration is not as we would want it to be. And I will go further to say that if you wait too long, say late summer when the colony is at population peak and it starts to slow down because less availability of forage or change in the summer solstice, the implosion is going to be spectacular. What leads me to this conclusion? What evidence do I have? I just talked about it. The Supreme Hive didn't make it, showed no signs of mite control and solving the problem. But the moderate hive sitting next to it did perfectly fine with a Formic Pro. And so did all the other hives sitting down the row that were not supreme hives. And when I listened to beekeepers talk about the hive they lost, the hive that absconded, the hive that died was their best producer, you start putting all this together and you have to wonder if it adds up to an equation. The treatments are not effective on the supreme hive. I'm more inclined to think that the way we need to go is to do something about the mite breeding capabilities so that it makes the treatments we employ effective. I'm going to share my opinion here that I do not think the treatments are simply effective enough on hives that have frame after frame of capped brood and masses of population. If I look at the contact materials in Apivar, I wonder if they get distributed enough. The contact materials in Apigard, do they get distributed enough when the population is supreme? In a moderate hive, maybe it gets around enough, but in a supreme hive, it's just not enough. And they can't go make these products uber strong. They want to be right at the threshold where good enough is perfect. And if you have a year, like this year, for example, where the, the foraging season here in the Mid-Atlantic region was amazing, a lot of people had really good hives. And I bet you're going to see a formula where a lot of people lost their really good hives late in the season. 
it, it almost has this undertone of why does being formed partnership want to count hives that succumbed in the summertime? Yeah, you can think I've been thinking about this on a couple seasons. This is some of the things that's rattling around in my noggin. I put this out there for you to think, but I want you to realize I'm not a researcher. I work for a living. I get up in the morning, I go to work in a pharma industry, and I get done in the evening, and I play bees on the weekend. So I could completely have this all wrong. I am one of those hobbyist beekeepers that comes up with these conspiracy theories about my impressions of things, just like everybody else. In this case, I just have a place to share them. I, I might be a little better informed as a master beekeeper and trainer and whatever at the people I talk to, but I'm just like everybody else telling you what I see. And here I am recording it for my own journaling. I really have no other evidence. If I had time as a researcher, I would go off and do this on the side, but I can't. I get up every morning and I go to work. So I'm going to take my hobbyist beekeeper notions and I'm going to do something about it. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to break up my supreme hives from now on. I'm going to force them to smaller overall populations. I want you to keep that in mind when I eventually get to part two, my six frame box polystyrene plan. But what other options are available? If you're, if you're trending to think that I might be onto something here, I've not mentioned in any way, shape, form, things you could do to combat some of these problems. The first one obvious is hygienic bees, integrated pest management practices. Brood breaks, heating colonies, essential oils, if you're into that, and more. Culling drones. What of these? I'm jaded to think that some of these are helpful, but not overly helpful. I don't want to go down that path. I could, I think, somewhere along the line, rank them in order of what I think are most effective. And I'll let you in on one of them. When I go to six frames, one of the ideas I have is to get back into drone calling, which I don't do too much. But I believe that's going to have a difference, and I'll talk more about that when I get to part two. If we go back to the formula of a split, one dynamic is you take a big hive and you split it up. One side gets the queen. And with the queen, they can somewhat continue on the trajectory to become a bigger hive because they have no brood break. The other side has to be supplied a queen. The colony slows down. If there are any mite situation, you get a brood break. Maybe you can solve that with a touch-up. What this does, in some respects, is it artificially resets the mite-to-bee ratio. That's important. The mite to bee ratio. We never want the mite ratio to be so high that the colony is taking an impact from that. And what I find when I listen to different operations that are successful, different operations that seem to have a handle on mite control, heck, even some treatment-free operations, a lot of what happens is inadvertently or on purpose, they're doing things 
that interrupt the mite to bee ratio. If somebody's a treatment-free beekeeper and they're selling their bees because they're, uh, you know, prolific, well-performing, treatment-free queen genetics, which is a great trait to have, they're also selling off parts of their colonies and getting rid of the mites. And then that colony resets to a lower mite threshold. And when the queen that's put in there outperforms, meaning more mites or more uh, workers being created than mites, that can inadvertently mean why that works. Same thing happens for uh, any other operation, you know. And one of the things I see is splits and brood breaks, I seem to think, have more and more utility in this world. I'll cut to the chase and say, whatever situation you have, if it results in new, fresh, healthy bees, you're on a good path. That's the answer. I find operations that perform splits and are in constant mode of forcing the colonies to build, whether it's new bees, fresh comb, things like that, they tend to have more productive operations. If I come back to the polyhive, it's actually <laughs> flawed in one way because the design of it drives the bees to be supreme. It's a supreme hive. They build incredible populations, new comb. I think somehow what I have to do is get that hive to slow down. How about that? How about that for an interesting idea? So look, I realize I've been bouncing all over the place, but to be honest, this is where I am in the evolution of this problem and its analysis and thinking about it. I've been thinking about whether this was going to happen and predicted it would, and then this year I watched it with my own eyes in the way that I thought it was going to occur, and this year was kind of a confirmation of sorts. I've been observing this phenomena of the Supreme Hive over the last couple seasons, and this year I made a hypothesis, predicted the outcome, and the prediction that a Supreme Hive would fail played out in the way that I thought it would. I probably could repeat this next year, and my guess is it would go the same path. Ironically, this happened to me over the summer. And I mentioned this in the last episode. I opened the October Bee Culture magazine and in the time space for Jim 2, where he produces his article, his article that month for October was How Bigger Hives Cause Problems. And you could read what he said and it parallels almost to the T what the discovery is here. Now he talked about like if you're trying to find a queen in a big colony, that's a problem. He went in different paths, but if you think about how many times a beekeeper says, I don't know what happened, but this hive was my best producer. I'm going to ask you, if you come into contact with beekeepers, beekeeping meetings or forums or whatever, how many times they say that in a season? Did they describe a supreme hive and that was the end result? And above all, you should be thinking about whether or not you have any supreme hives. Have you experienced this? It's not, I think, a given. 
it doesn't mean that every single supreme hive will implode. There's a good chance at it. But it should make you think that if you see a supreme hive, maybe you don't want to let it get that big. I'll continue as it is my way to deliver my musing on this and look for different options. I have until next season to explore ways to combat this phenomenon. I think back to the way that we got ourselves into this situation and the whole commercial thing. Commercial operations love supreme hives. They get paid for colonies that have enough bees in it to go to pollination and things like that. They're doing things, a lot of commercial operations, where they do splits, they create fresh colonies, they put a new queen every year. That's not the hobbyist way. In some respect, I have end around made the connection with Darwinian beekeeping, title notwithstanding, for Seeley of going back to smaller hives from the perspective of it negates supreme colonies, and maybe that's really where the root of our problem is. I plan to chew on this for a while and see what I can do. Um, but make no mistake, part two of the polyhive suggestion is to go into smaller boxes. Not because of Darwinian, but for other reasons which I'll explain. So uh, if you had an interest in this, and want to hear more about logic of a way to combat it, make sure you come back for part two. So bigger is not always better. Who knew? Who would have guessed? Now maybe you could let bigger get better and then replace those bees with the split next year and take advantage of the honey. There's some people who like that idea. You know, Supreme Colony is going to make supreme amount of honey. And if it implodes, well, okay, you'll make a split and you put it in that box and you'll figure out a way to build the supreme colony every year and you'll just let it go. I guess that's possible. It's not the way I would go. But, yeah, so I'm rambling a bit, but as you can see, um, I, I am going to muse about this topic. This is where I am on it and I thought it would be really interesting to share with you. So thanks for listening. If you have any impressions about this, uh, Kevin at BK Corner is where you can find me. Just shoot me off an email. Given the time we are at in the episode, I think I'm going to close it down. Originally, I wasn't sure whether or not I'd be able to put part two in here, but I think I'm going to save that for 183. So you could consider these the closing comments. I wanted to come back to something from episode number 181. Actually, I was kind of surprised. When I put that out there, I wasn't quite sure how the reaction was going to be. And actually, I think a lot of people connected with that, at least the feedback that I got. And if it wasn't evident, my message was, whenever you're listening to something, just evaluate where it's coming from, take that into consideration. It's that simple. I'm going to call this, though, the cleanup crew, clearing something up that happened in the middle of that that could have been misconstrued, and I want to make sure that I don't um, lead people astray in an impression that I had.
In the last episode, I used an example of a poor experience with a beekeeper and noted that they held a certification from North Carolina by the title of journeyman. I received feedback from one of my biggest critics, my twin. He listens to every show. He thought that the slight of choosing that example did not give a good perception of the EAS program. I kind of looked at that and said, I give myself a pass. I had nothing to say about EAS, right? EAS assembles a bunch of different speakers. It's different every year. It's ad hoc. I have no idea who's going to speak, what they're going to speak about, and what the quality is. It's just the way the world goes, right? And when you go through those sessions, you should take it with a grain of salt that every once in a while, you're going to get one that maybe doesn't tickle your fancy. What I wanted to spend a moment to elaborate is something and walk back any possible misconception of the message. EAS is amazing. You could hear in the other examples that I gave that the content is so rich and incredible that you should absolutely go to EAS conferences. 99% of the time, you're going to get really good content. And that goes for other conferences and local meetings and other things. But every once in a while, yeah, sorry, you're just going to get something that's not good, which was the whole point of what I was talking about. If you understand how to evaluate something that's good versus bad, you'll decide whether you should lean in or lean back. There's another thing I want to clear up, any possible misconception of the message. And to use myself as an example, I would hope that most of the time I'm on, <laughs> but every once in a while I have bad days. You know, the topics of beekeeping are diverse, and for those of us that put ourselves out there for beekeeping education, sometimes we get pressed into service to talk about something we are really kind of tepid about. Didn't have the right preparation, got put on the spot, maybe had a, a brain fart, who knows, right? If I had to guess, going back to the example I used of the journeyman that day, maybe that's what happened that day to that gentleman. What I don't want to infer, and you should not take away from what I said, is that the North Carolina program for journeymen was of poor or low quality. I didn't say that. In fact, I'd go the other way. Now, I appreciate Keith my twin, saying something to me because in my quest to illustrate a point when I'm on a roll, I don't particularly look at the lens of how something could be interpreted. It's only when I receive feedback that I can come back and address some of these things. And I think this is as important as the lean in and lean back. Generally, the amount of energy that these programs put in, for example, the North Carolina certification program, that gave this person the journeyman certificate are of high quality. They have to be. If it's coming from a state level or university or whatever, 99% of the applicants that go through meet some sort of criteria. But just like it was in high school where you have that one person who's just smart in some ways, but um, you know knows how to pass a test and things like that, but maybe they just don't have the rounded out qualifications Things happen, right? That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> I'm going to dig myself a hole if I keep going. What's odd to me was I went there in that piece because I needed to pull out an example of 
what it was like to discern good information source versus a bad one. And well, sometimes you got to provide those examples. But one bad session of a journeyman from North Carolina does not infer that the entire program is bad. So hopefully that's clear. And I will clear it up to say, I know tons of beekeepers who are educated out of, well, tons is probably an exaggeration. Let me not do that. Let me be more specific and, and tight with this because I'm trying to clean something up. I know a good number of individuals from North Carolina, and they're far more qualified to talk about this type of stuff. And you should not consider this one example that I pulled out of a bad occurrence. It, it happened. So I talked about it as a, any signal, signal of what that program is about. So I simply wanted to illustrate that you use your brain when listening to something, and even if they're certified or vastly experienced or have a hundred hives, they still might be off the mark in the topic that they're talking about. Use all your senses to baseline the situation to decide whether you should lean in or lean in. One particular session across an entire week of amazing sessions, it, it didn't go well. What should you do when you encounter these situations? You should do what I did. Dewey Karen set up all the speakers that go around. And I provided feedback. That's what feedback is when you go to a session like EAS. They ask you to rank and rate the speakers. I wasn't rude about it. That's a key point to my feedback. But I did mention to Dewey that I thought the session was a little fluffy. I thought that the speaker could have been a little better prepared and a little more polished, and now they put things through, and I left it at that. I'm sure that the committee went back and uh, hopefully had a constructive conversation with that person. I also know that maybe the committee looked at it and said, you know what, we tapped this guy on the shoulder because we have an open slot today, and we pressed him in, and, well, we're going to give it a pass. You never know, right? So look. Let's not get wrapped around the axle for this. Hopefully that cleans up any misconceptions that it could have stemmed about the North Carolina program and or EAS. Uh, you'll hear me constantly, consistently telling you to participate in these programs and partake in the EAS conferences. You'll be so much better off for it. So I want to say thanks to Keith <laughs> for giving me the information and another person, uh, I'll just leave that name out, that provided a quick reply and say that I support the EAS Master Beekeeper Program. I support the North Carolina uh, programs for that. In fact, ncbeekeepers.org slash programs slash MBP. It's Mike Bravo Peter, MBP. That's where you can go and look to see if you're interested in becoming a master beekeeper in the North Carolina program. They have information for you, and I highly encourage you to take a look at that. So I'm happy to have received the feedback. If something ever rubs you wrong, I'd, I'd like to hear it. I'm okay with that. It helps me to, you know, bring in the cleanup crew if that's the case it's going to be. Before I close out the episode, I wanted to mention something. I mentioned a few episodes ago about the Bee's Knees cocktail. And we don't have that much alcohol in the house, but on a 
sojourn we went on recently to a grocery store right next door was a liquor store and we went in and we bought ourselves some gin so that we could make the bee's knees cocktail i completely misread the recipe it told you how to make honey syrup and i made the honey syrup and then i proceeded to pour all of the honey syrup into the cocktail that i made and it was second sweet in fact sharon actually got sick to her stomach when we drank it and i'm thinking to myself this can't be right when i went back and read the instructions what they said was make the honey syrup and then store it and every time you wanted it you could go put an ounce of it into your drink and I poured the whole thing into it <laughs> yeah sometimes i'm such a dope so recently I went back and actually followed the recipe and it was really good. Now, one of the things when you make the bee's knees cocktail is you put your gin in, you put your lemon juice and you put your sugar syrup, which is made of honey and water because it's a honey syrup. Of course, that's the whole point of it. And you can change the concentration of how sweet the drink is. I made the drink, you, you could use one part honey, one part water. But I thought maybe that would be too sweet for the syrup, so I tuned it back a little bit. Nope. My recommendation is if you go to liquor.com, I think that's the website I got the traditional recipe from, they tell you to use one part honey, one part water. I would recommend you go with that. When I covered that in that episode, I did talk about playing around with the ratio to get it the way you want. And now what I'm going to say to you is when I lessened the ratio, I didn't think it was sweet enough. So go with the one-to-one. -one, and then if you don't like it, you can scale it back. I'm going to come back in episode 183 with part two of the poly situation. I want to talk about a change from 10 frame hives to six in the rationale to that. So if you found what we talked about interesting, please do come back and check that out. I think it'll be the next episode. We'll see whether or not uh, that plays out. And then somewhere down the line, because I think this is um, an important topic, I'm recording them separately, but I might go put them together and just release them as a single episode for the record. That's what I'm thinking about, but that means, as is typical at the end of the episode, I'm thinking too much, and it's time to say sayonara for right now. We'll be back with another episode. So, like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, we accomplish great things. Thanks for listening, everyone, and be well.